Now, I want you to picture with me this morning that your doorbell rings at your house. I don't want you to close your eyes because that's dangerous to do at this time of the morning. But just picture it in your mind that you answer the doorbell and you greet two men dressed in black suits holding an envelope. Parked in your driveway is a limousine with the crest of the White House on the door and in the street are two police cruisers with their lights flashing. One of the men at the door hands you the envelope and informs you that this is an invitation to the White House. You examine the envelope and you notice in the corner of the return address the uh, small uh, picture of the, the White House and your name is embossed in, on the front. Before you open the, the, uh, let the envelope carefully because you don't want to damage the contents and when you look at the contents there's a card in there that says you are invited to the White House. And one of the very first thoughts that flashes across your mind is, what am I going to wear? <laughs> you read the rest of the card and it fills out some details, but it never tells you what you're going to wear. And so you go back to that question, what do I wear? Friends, how do I prepare to spend an evening at the White House? Now, I know that question has never been asked of any of us or that opportunity has not been given to us, but a similar question is before us this morning with an entirely different setting as, but of a much greater importance. How does a person prepare to enter into the presence of God? This question is also asked in Psalm 24 verse 3 it says who may ascend at the mountain of the Lord who may stand in his holy place and Psalm 15 begins with that question of who can dwell who can live and come into the presence of God who's qualified to be there Amos chapter 4 verse 12 commanded the Israelites to prepare to meet your God but the tone of that quest or that command is not, a com is not a nice gentle invitation, but rather it is a command to prepare to meet your God in judgment because Israel had failed in their following him. In Psalm 15, the psalmist does not give us a command to face judgment, but rather how to prepare so that we can avoid judgment in the end. Now let me clarify quickly that this is, not a, this is not a psalm on salvation. This does not tell you how you can get right spiritually in a sense of, of having your sins forgiven. This is not a salvation psalm, but rather it is a psalm that goes beyond that, goes after the fact. Because you see, God accepts the most depraved sinner as she or he is if there's repentance involved. But this is after salvation. But even then, friends, you and I cannot simply saunter into the presence of God and say, here I am, God. Here I am. I'm ready. Go ahead. Let's have a conversation. But rather, we need to be prepared to meet our God. Psalm 15 is a great reminder at the beginning of the year as 
of how you and I as God's people should live in this coming year, 2023, and in the years beyond. So we begin with the question that is asked, who may dwell in your sacred temple? And I trust you have your Bibles open to Psalm 15 or your device or whatever it is and you can follow along because we'll work our way through this psalm. This question is addressed to God. You may notice your translation has the word Lord capitalized, at least most translations do. It is the Hebrew word Yahweh, four letters that compose this word, Y-H-W-H. And in the original Hebrew, they appeared without vowels. The The Jews considered that name so sacred that they added vowels to make it be pronounced as Adonai. It's another word you've probably heard in the past. Adonai also meaning Lord. But they could not call God by his personal name, which he had chosen in their covenant relationship with the Jews. But it is addressed to the God Almighty, the personal God of the nation Israel and the God of the universe. So then my next thought was, well, why did we ask the question? Why do we need to ask that question? Don't we know how to enter into the presence of God? Well, people from the very beginning of time have intuitively realized that a holy God or a God of whatever design or character you might have of a God somehow or other needs some preparation to come into his presence. You can't just walk into a God's presence and say, here I am. So you go to any country in the world and there's a form of religious uh, ceremony or entry uh, preparation to enter their God's presence. They bring sacrifices. They will uh, cut themselves. They'll do all kinds of things. They'll walk on fire coals, etc. Anything to get that done in a way of preparation. And so we need to know that that is something we ask ourselves as well. How do we come into the presence of God? The psalmist asked two parallel questions, really the same question, just two different ways. How, who may dwell in your sacred tent and who may live in your holy mountain? The, the word tent referred to the tabernacle, which at one time was a temporary place where God was located in a sense, and later on it became a reference to the temple as the Solomon had built the temple as a permanent place for Israel to come. Their question was, how do we prepare to come into your presence there? Or the holy mountain. You see, most of the places of sacrifice and worship were on a hill or on a mountain. And even when you go to Jerusalem, you'll see that the, you've got the Temple Mount. It was Solomon built a temple on a mount, on a hill, uh, on a mound above everything else. And this is where the Israelites came to worship. Now, before Solomon, the presence of God was centralized in the tabernacle. You remember the stories of Israel moving through the wilderness, uh, Genesis, Aaron, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and into Deuteronomy. They had a tabernacle that they they, uh, set up and took down every time they moved. It was temporary. And then Solomon built a temple after they moved into the country. 
And yet this was the place where, where God was somewhat localized. We realize God is everywhere. So it isn't that we were putting God in a box or in a tabernacle, but this was where his presence would be most likely displayed. This was what the Israelites came to or where the Israelites came to when they came for the three major feasts of the Israelites, the Passover and the first fruits and the uh, Feast of Booths. As they approached Jerusalem, they had to prepare themselves because again, they couldn't simply walk into the presence of a holy God and expect acceptance. After Christ's death and resurrection, the temple was no longer the center, but now it became the believer's life that became the center, God's dwelling within each one of, our, of the believers. You accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you are now considered the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit and temple of Christ. So the temple then switched, and so in a sense it's different, and yet there is something unique about this building that we are in this morning. There's something special and sacred about a place where God's people come together to worship and to fellowship together. And so it does apply in that sense to us. How do we prepare not only for this morning's sermon and our service and the following weeks, but every day in our life, how do we prepare? Now with our New Testament thinking, Probably many of us jump to Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and I'm prepared and I'm ready to go. If we were of Old Testament mindset, we would have probably gone back to the list of requirements needed in the, in the past that God had laid out for the Israelites, the sacrifices, the purification ceremonies, all of the way that you live, the Ten Commandments, etc. Those would have been God's way of saying, prepare to meet us. But God surprised, I think, the readers of the psalmist of that day. It was a list based on the internal character and, and position of a person in relation to God, not the external, it was the God-fearer. Today we would call this person a follower of Jesus Christ. We have confessed our sins. We have repented of all of our wrongdoing and we've turned our life over to him and asked him to be our savior and our guide. This then is a sign of a relationship with God and obedience to him. A number of weeks ago, Pastor Jay was working through the book of Colossians, and when he, in Colossians chapter two, he mentioned that true disciples obey, false disciples don't. Obedience is the sign of a, of a, of a relationship with God that is referred to in this section. Although it doesn't make it, although those words aren't used, but this is what we're talking about here, that inner being, that inner person who has a right relationship with God. So what are those qualifications to enter or dwell in his sanctuary? Now it's interesting as I read this that God doesn't jump to the big sins. God doesn't talk about murder, adultery, um, incest, doesn't talk about greed, doesn't talk about all of those things that we would normally consider the big sins. But rather, he talks about uh, a list of issues that you and I struggle with. 
You and I struggle with these issues day by day and God is saying, here's a list of inner qualities that need to be displayed in your life. They're also not a list of things to do on Saturday night as you get ready to go to church on Sunday. Whoops, I need to clean up. I need to prepare because tomorrow's church. Now that doesn't mean there aren't some, some things that we may need to deal with on Saturday night, but this isn't what God is talking about here. He is talking about a list of, of character or list of qualifications that are preparation throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the year, and throughout the entire life. He deals first of all with lifestyle. He says the one whose walk is blameless, now these are the people qualified to come into the presence of God. The one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. To be blameless is to be that which is complete, just, honest, perfect. It is an attitude that reflects genuineness and reliability. It doesn't mean perfect because none of us reach that status but an attitude of the heart desirous of pleasing God. A person who is quick to deal with mistakes, to make restitution, to be honest with others around them. And the person who is righteous, it has to do with a legal term. Not too long ago, on a uh, brief uh, news clip, I saw part of an interview that uh, our former Vice President Mike Pence had with uh, Dan Muir of ABC World News. And it was just a small clip and there was a, another a full hour interview at another time which I didn't see. But it, it was also partly on the book that uh, Mike Pence has written. But he was asked about the January 6th attack on the White House. And Mike Pence mentioned that he had received a text that had asked him to do something that he considered illegal. His daughter was with him at the time he got the text, and as he got the text, he read it, and he turned to his daughter and he said, you know, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to do what is right. And so this is the kind of person that God says is qualified, the one who does right not what is expedient, not what is, is, is uh, pressure, we're pressured to do necessarily, but it is something that we are considering, what, that we consider to be right according to God's word. This is a person who never has to hide anything. You see, if your life is blameless and righteous, you don't have to hide. You don't have to make up stories. You ever tried making up stories? It's really tough because all of a sudden somebody asks the question a little differently and you gotta remember what you said before in order to get that story to, to, to tie together. But these are people whose lives are constantly on display and we know our lives are on display. People are watching us. Are we the same in private as we are in public? The person around you on Sunday, sitting beside you on Sunday, is that the same person you know during the week. If you are a football fan, <clears throat> you may remember that in the days gone by, probably in the years gone by by now, that the uh, head football coach had a set of headphones that were connected to a cord that went to a power source somewhere. And in order for that cord not to get tangled up as the coach walked up and down the sidelines, there was somebody carrying that cord and making sure that the coach didn't trip. 
one of the grooms, uh, a groom in one of my weddings in Nebraska was the cord carrier for Tom Osborne, the Nebraska Cornhusker coach uh, who had won a number of national championships. And I don't know if you've ever, if you ever saw the Nebraska Cornhuskers play when Tom Osborne was the coach, but he was the most relaxed, the most calm, the most dignified coach walking that sidelines. No matter what his players did, I never saw him get in the face of a player, never saw him scream at the refs. He was always calm and collected. I asked the groom, I said, now tell me, you are in the locker room at halftime, you are in the locker room during the week. What is Tom Osborne really like? What's he really like? And the groom told me, Tom is just the person in the locker room, out of the public eyes, out of the camera's sight, as he is on the sidelines of the football game. Tom was a man who lived his Christian faith. He was a blameless, righteous man no matter what the circumstances were, no matter where he was. And so the God goes on and he continues to give him instructions and give qualifications for us. We've looked at the lifestyle. He then moves on into speech. He said, who speaks the truth from their heart. What this person says is considerate, it is truthful. Truth which is deeply embedded in the heart. Friends, that's where truth comes from. If you don't have truth in your heart, it's very hard for you to speak truth to others. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In Matthew verse, chapter 12, Christ called the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. You see, when there's, there, when there's evil and there's deceit and there's uh, untruthfulness in the heart, it's gonna come out. Oh, you may be able to fake it for a short time, but sooner or later, the truth will come out. A Scottish poet, Sir Walter Scott, was born in 1777, and he wrote a poem about a battle that, was take, that took place in 1513. And out of that poem comes one of the most famous lines in all of literature. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. You see, that's a man, person who is not qualified to come into the presence of God. If truth is not in our hearts, it won't be evident in our actions. It won't be evident in our words. We live in a world where expediency is the, is the top priority, not necessarily truth. We find that truth is something that may or may not work for you, but it doesn't work for me all the time either. You see, we also have come to the point where we believe that a person's private life has no bearing on their public life. And this we hear over and over again of politicians and, and how they may live as they please, but their policies are okay, so we're good. We're okay with that. Unfortunately, it's even coming to the church and time after time, we hear of Christian leaders who thought their private lives had no connection 
with the public. And they could write books about great theological themes and, and great living ideas, and yet their lives were a mess. I have thrown out many books off my shelves when I found out that that person who wrote that book, which was a good book, had good content, had lived a totally hypocritical life. And so truth is crucial for the person who wants to be qualified to enter the the presence of God. Or this person has no slander, the tongue utters no slander. The word slander means to roam around to spy things out or spread them around. It's like gossip. You spy it around, you find out the information, and you pass it on to somebody else. God says, no, that's not how you're going to qualify to enter into my presence. There is no slander in that person's tongue. That person is above board. That person is one who doesn't want damage to take place, but rather they want to encourage, as we heard this morning, We want to encourage one another rather than discourage one another. Ephesians 4.29 says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Have you ever thought about that, how often we say things that don't encourage? things that discourage, things that may tear down, that may, things that are not helpful to those who are listening. He goes on to talk about treating our neighbors well, more to do with our speech. A neighbor is a person with whom one associates regularly or casually without necessarily building a close relationship. It may be somebody who lives next door, maybe somebody who lives down the street, or It it may be someone who you've just met, but they can be your neighbor. And the qualified person does not put down or show contempt or cast blame on anyone, which is what that idea is of of, uh, doing wrong to a neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In application, I think that means everyone. We are to be loving and kind to everyone we meet. As I thought about this, I realized how easily tongues can destroy lives. Often the ones we love most can be the victims of our tongue. Negative talk is very prevalent in society. You don't need to watch TV programs very long before you find that they are filled with negative put-downs and nasty comments toward others, the ones you love. Marriages described on TV are not kind and loving usually. They're fighting, they argue, they tear each other down. And we come to the place where we think this is natural because everybody's doing it. Husbands, I want you to listen this morning. It is not a sign of manhood to verbally abuse your wife or your children, to belittle them, to put them down. Wives, pull in your elbows because you also have that restriction. It is not a a good sign, sign of a good woman to verbally abuse your husband or your children. Those of you who aren't married, that doesn't give you any right 
to talk that way to others as well. You too need to be restricted and treat others with respect and honor. Young people, listen up. Listen, how do you treat your parents? How do you talk to your friends? How do you talk to your siblings? You see, this is, ties in with this here. You don't cast a slur on anyone, especially not your family, and then others as well. While I was looking up the, uh, working on this idea of the tongue, I came across a, a familiar children's rhyme that was written in 1830. Sticks and stones may break by bones, but words will never hurt me. Friends, even children don't believe that. They don't believe that. Because we have mouthed that, that saying for years while the words have cut deep into the wounds of our heart. That's what this does, does not qualify us to be a part or, or to enter into the presence of God. While I was researching this, I saw the title of an interesting book. I didn't read it, but I saw the title. Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones, But Words Can Kill My Spirit. How many of you here this morning, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you here this morning have had your spirits killed because somebody spoke to you in a way that was hurtful, that put you down, that cut you deeply? I have a feeling there's number here who can feel those wounds and it may have been a childhood wound and you may be 50 or 60 or 70 years old and you still have those wounds from that tongue lashing that somebody gave you. Friends, that is wrong for us as God's people to treat each other that way. James 3, 5, and 6 says, likewise the tongue is a small part of the body but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of hell on fire, of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. We need to stop, friends. It is ruining our families. It's ruining our homes. It's ruining our church. Remember that everything you say has two components. There's two parts to everything you say. There's the content and there's the packaging. And sometimes our content may be okay, but our packaging isn't quite there. I've heard many a so-called compliment that's said with a very sarcastic tone, and that is wrong. God says, this person does not qualify to you, who uses this kind of word, language. Doesn't tear others down, there's no slur on others. This is to cast scorn. Before we say anything, before we pass on any information, before we open our mouths, we, we need to think of three questions. We need to answer three questions for ourselves. Is it true? Is it needful? And is it kind? Those three questions must be answered for what we want to tell somebody. And that doesn't mean we now have a right to say that, but it certainly is a checkpoint for us. Is it kind? Is it, is it uh, true? Is it needful? Is it kind? Any juicy information you get needs to stay with you and not be passed on 
I just had a thought, you might want to stay off social media. It's not a purveyor of uh, kind words and graciousness for many, for many people. So then we go on, God continues with his list of qualifications. It is now, our, what's our reputation? It's a person who despise of, despises a vile person. Living the Christian life requires discrimination. Now I know that's not politically correct. We're not to be discriminatory. But the Bible is very discriminatory. The Bible is very clear on what our discrimination ought to be. And here is one of those, despise vile people. Being able to distinguish between right and wrong, between good and evil, as one of the qualifications. And this means to have nothing to do with a vile person. The person who has rejected God. Now this is not social. This is not racial, it doesn't relate to any race of the individual, it is simply a person who has chosen to reject God and live contrary to his word. It comes out of God's own uh, background and, and his own character. Psalm 5 verse 4 says, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness, with you evil people are not welcome. You may remember the story in Matthew chapter 10 where Christ sends out the 10 disciples or the 12 disciples and he says if you come to this house and they accept you, great, go in and enjoy it. If they cut, you come to another house, they don't accept you, what are you gonna do? You shake the dust off your feet and get out. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't hang around with them. This is simply living as God would have us live. He despises vile people. Now, that doesn't mean we go around with contempt for anybody who's not a believer. Oh, you're one of those, okay. That's gonna stay away. But it does mean to avoid people who live evil lives and then seek the companionship and the friendship and the positive attitude of God-fearing people. We need to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And so we honor those who fear the Lord. That's the next part of verse four. We, we despise the vile person, honor those who fear the Lord. The word honor is the word literally heavy, to be heavy or weighty. We use it in a figurative sense of a person carrying a lot of weight. That's not a physical at, attribute, but it's a, it's a uh, figurative where the person is very influential or maybe very powerful. It's the Hebrew word kabod. And if you want to make that a negative, this is a Hebrew lesson, you add Ica to it and you have Ichabod. Interesting word. If you call somebody an Ichabod, it means they have no glory. Don't do that. Then go back to the verses that I've just talked about where you don't do that. But Ichabod was the name of Eli, priest Eli's grandson. Read that story in 1 Samuel chapter four. The glory of God had departed and there was no glory. There's no weight, there's no influence, there's no power. But God says that we are to honor those. We are to consider powerful, influential, important, those who fear God. Then he goes on and talks about the fact that it's a, he's a person, this person who qualifies as the one who keeps an oath even when it hurts. A reputation that includes keeping a promise. When you make a commitment, you can count on it. When you have a friend who says, I will do this, you better, you can count on that person because they will be there. 
This reliability isn't without its costs because we all know we've made commitments, we've made decisions where the circumstances suddenly change and it no longer is a profitable activity or uh, opportunity for us and we want to back out and sometimes we have. We've said, oh, you know, that's costing too much. I'm going to back out. But God says that uh, this is a person who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. I gave you my word, no matter what it costs, I will follow through. A former senator and U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft wrote a book entitled Lessons from a Father to His Sons. And this is the story he tells. Until 1997, Michael Jordan, indisputably a leading player in the NBA for decades, or over a decade, was never the highest paid player. When he was asked about why he did not do what so many other players did, that is hold out on their contracts until they got more money, Michael said, I have always honored my word. I went for security. I had six-year contracts, and I always honored them. People said I was underpaid, but when I signed on the dotted line, I gave my word. Three years later, after several highly visible players reneged on their contracts, a reporter asked Michael again about being underpaid. He explained that if his children saw their dad breaking his promise, how could he continue training them to keep their word? (coughs) By not asking for contract negotiation, Michael Jordan spoke volumes to his children. He told them, you stand by your word, even when it might go against you. You see, that's the person, God says, qualifies to come into my presence. Then there's a generosity issue, lending money to the poor without interest. This is not a matter of giving money away. This is not a matter of not lending money. This is a matter of not lending money without with interest, according to this verse, who lends money to the poor without interest. The word interest is an interesting word. (coughs) It is, the word literally means to put a bite on someone. So interest puts a bite. Anybody experience that? Interest puts a bite on a person. And when that word is used as a verb in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, it is always in reference to a snake. So it has an interesting uh, etymology there. But, uh, but the interest is something that we're not to charge when we're lending to the poor according to this. Now, we need to consider some cultural issues as well. So I'm not saying that if you lend money to someone, you can't charge interest. But whatever it is, the context is a very clear admonition. Do not overcharge on the interest. Do not make this heavy. Do not make this unnecessary. In, the, in those days when, uh, the, when this was written and in the days around this, the years around this, the interest was often up to 50% of your loan. And a person would never get out of debt with that kind of interest. And God says, lend money to the poor without interest. And what he is really saying is, I'll take care of you if you help that person out. I believe that's kind of what he's saying. I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you, you help that person during, through this time. 
you could give a lot, you could lend money it's not a matter of not lending money and if for foreigners Deuteronomy chapter 23 says that it's okay to give a loan with interest but it needed to be a very carefully controlled interest not the exorbitant interest of that time and you're not to ex- accept the bribe against the innocent a bribe is a gift given to influence an outcome or higher services a person who is qualified with God to walk with God does not accept money or give money so that power can be used against the innocent. Often the poor were cast into court and taken advantage of by the well-to-do. And we have that happening often today as well. If you've got money, we, we know that sometimes you get out much quicker and much easier and get off with a lighter sentence or maybe no sentence which is not the case of those that have no finances, no backing whatsoever. And the psalmist, in, through, the word, through God's inspiration, makes it very clear that this is not something that we need to do. Exodus 23 says, do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. And then lastly, the psalmist says, whoever does these things, here's a list of things that are done, God says, whoever does all these things will never be shaken. Friends, you want a secure life? You want a life that doesn't cause a toppling of your life and and a messed up life? This is how we get there. This is a list of the qualifications to have a shake-proof foundation. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. It's a word that's used in the negative sense for idols that were toppling. And when they made an idol, they'd have to nail it down because it was gonna topple over. God says, no, no, you'll never topple over. I'm not gonna topple over, so you're not gonna topple over if you follow these things. That's because we have an anchor. Hebrews 6, 19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Friends, we have a secure anchor in God. Through the person of Jesus Christ, you and I have a relationship with him. We can have that relationship with him. And we have a hope as an anchor for the soul. No matter how rough life's storms are, we have this anchor. For 2 Timothy 112, and I'd love to hear Paul say this in person. He says, I know whom I have believed. And I think he said it with considerable enthusiasm and excitement. I have an anchor and I know who I have believed. I don't think he said it in a wimpy voice. You know, Paul, if you've read his writings, he's not a wimpy person. He says, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Amen. They, we will not be shaken as we will follow the qualifications. How do we wrap this up quickly? Before we prepare, or how, before we think about preparing to meet God on earth, friends, there's a far more important question and that is how are we gonna meet God after death? When this life is over, and we stand before the judge of the earth, how will we answer? Will we be prepared? If you've never repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are not prepared to meet God. You could do all of this stuff, all of these qualifications and follow them to a letter and, and pat yourself on the back and say, whoa, what a great 
person I am. And God says, no, no, you missed the point. That point is that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The good news is that you can do that today. And then you can follow these qualifications and you will not be shaken and you will be prepared to meet God. You need to have that personal relationship with Christ. Secondly, you need to use this list. This is a great list for the beginning of the year. Pin it up somewhere on your mirror when you get up in the morning, look at this list. Who's qualified? How is my life going to reflect that today? How is my tongue going to show that to others? How is my financial responsibility going to be used so that I can qualify to meet God? How am I going to do in my speech with my family? How's my lifestyle going to be today? Will I be the person I claim to be in public? What kind of preparation are we doing? Paul said that whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. How much time do we prepare, use to prepare to meet God? How much time is there spent? This is, like I said, not a Saturday night activity. This is not a Sunday morning quick activity before we go to church. This is lifelong. What preparation are we making? A number of years ago, I had tickets to a Nebraska-Iowa football game in Lincoln, Nebraska on the the Friday after Thanksgiving. Now going with me was our son Chris and our son-in-law Tom. And all week long, we focused on what are we going to wear, how are we going to prepare, because going to a football game in central Nebraska in the middle of no- at the end of November can be a very miserable experience because of the cold and the snow and the wind. And so we bought sweat, Nebraska sweatshirts, we packed our heavy winter coats, gloves, hats, boots, whatever, so that we would be prepared. But we spent time preparing for that. That was not done the night before. Preparation is important. When I prepare to go to Myanmar for a week or two, two weeks, it's not something I do the night before. It takes time, it takes preparation, it takes thought, concern, and consideration. And the qualifications that God has laid out require constant attention. Oh, by the way, the game time temperature that for that football game was in the 60s. But we, but we were prepared. We were prepared. We were able to leave all our heavy winter stuff in the car and just go with our sweatshirts. And to remember, friends, that ultimately you are preparing for the future. What we do through the day prepares us for our final meeting with God. Second Peter 3 gives us a glimpse of how the world will end and he asks this question. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Let's pray. Father, you've given us a reminder this morning of how we are to live in order to be qualified to come into your presence. Father, it's sometimes easy to forget that you are a holy God. You are an omnipotent, majestic God, a God of uh, power and righteousness. And sometimes we wanna just simply come in as we are and just say, here I am, God, accept me. And yes, you do that for salvation, but then you lay down some guidelines. 
some qualifications for us to come into your presence. And Father, I pray that we might do that. If there's anyone here who has never put their faith and trust in you, I pray that they would do that today. And I pray this in your wonderful and precious name, amen.